Well, so, so good to see you tonight. Let's turn together in our Bibles to Revelation 21. We're almost done with the book of Revelation, so uh, well, this is an important chapter as it all is, but what a, a glorious chapter we come to in relation to uh, the hope of heaven that we have. So turn to Revelation 21, and uh, we're actually going to jump back to the last part of chapter 20 that we didn't get to last week. So uh, for those who don't have a Bible with you, just raise your hand and these guys will hand you Bibles on the way up and down the aisles. But we left off last week um, right at verse 11 of chapter 20. We've been looking at the timeline of events through the book of Revelation over the last several months uh, in this study. And uh, as we've been following together, the timeline basically has been this. Uh, Jesus rose from the dead, appeared on the earth for 40 days after his resurrection, then he ascended into heaven. When he ascended into heaven, really the church was born at Pentecost, and uh, then that begins the church age. We're presently living in the church age, and at any time Jesus, Jesus could come in the clouds to rapture the church, to take the church, to be with him forever. And when the rapture happens, it's followed by seven years of tribulation, and then at the end of the tribulation period comes the millennial reign. Jesus comes again, Revelation 19, and establishes his kingdom on earth for a thousand years, during which time the uh, uh, devil is bound and um, there is peace on earth unlike any other time in human history because Jesus is the Prince of Peace who is ruling and reigning from Jerusalem. Now, at the end of the thousand-year period, there is then the great white throne judgment. Because you have to remember that people have been living on the earth and procreating and they need an opportunity really uh, to come to faith in Jesus by giving them a, ch a choice. And so Satan is released at the end of the thousand years. And uh, those, unfortunately, who will be beguiled by him and deceived by him will join forces uh, once again as the devil incites Nations to rise up against the Lord, who's the Prince of Peace in Jerusalem, and nations will converge at the end of this thousand year period, and the Lord will smite them, and uh, they will be utterly destroyed. And so the fury of his wrath and the winepress is given to us there in chapter 20, uh, chapter 19. And then into chapter 20 now, uh, at the conclusion of all of this, we have this great white throne judgment starting in verse 11. And uh, so let me just read, this is chapter 20, verse 11, down through the end of the chapter, and then we'll come back and talk about it. So verse 11 says, Then I saw a great white throne, that's why it's called the great white throne judgment, and him who was seated on it, earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books, plural, were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire." So let's uh, talk about this um, great white throne judgment. After the um, 
thousand-year reign, and then this great white throne judgment comes the new heaven and new earth, which we'll get to in chapter 21. But for those of you who take notes in relation to the great white throne judgment, first thing to recognize, this is for unbelievers. I have a lot of Christians from time to time who read this passage and get very nervous because they begin to think, this is the great day, and I've been told this, I remember growing up hearing this taught, this is the great day where Christians supposedly stand before the great white throne of God, and there's this huge widescreen video playing TV that goes off about your life and everything you've ever done. And all of your sin and all of your thoughts and everything was exposed before the world to see on this great big screen, this IMAX thing that God had up in heaven before everybody to watch about your sin and your behavior and how horrible a person you are. Now, if you've heard anything close to that, let me see your hands. Many hands going up. So let me just dispel the fears. This is a judgment for unbelievers. This is not for believers. How do we know? Let me give you a few different references. For example, John chapter 5, verse 24. Listen to what Jesus said. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has passed over from death to life. John 5, 24. That's the words of Jesus. In other words, you accept him as your Lord and Savior. The judgment happens at that moment. When you become a Christian, you put your faith and trust in Jesus. Your sins are covered by the blood. You've been judged at that moment as having been righteous in his sight because his sacrifice paid the price for your sins. So you will not be condemned is what he says in John 5, 24. You've passed over from death to life. It's not going to be revisited. It's not like Jesus says, you will not be condemned, you've been passed over, you've passed over from death to life. But by the way, at the great white throne judgment, we're going to revisit it just for fun. (laughs) That isn't what will happen. Romans 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So there's no condemnation. You're not going to appear before the great white throne judgment as a believer. Now, some would argue, but wait a minute, and the passage is true, 2 Corinthians 5, 10 says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is done, what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So if that's the case, since the Bible does say, 2 Corinthians 5.10, that we all have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ, maybe this is it. No, that's not it. The judgment seat in 2 Corinthians 5.10 is the Greek word bima, B-E-M-A, bima seat. It is at that point there will come a time when believers will be judged. In addition to that moment when your sins were paid for, that's the ultimate judgment, there will be a judgment seat we have to stand before Christ in regards to, listen, not salvation, but commendation. There is a judgment for your righteous works that shall be or maybe not be rewarded depending on what you've done. Now, our works do not get us saved. Everybody knows that, right? It's only Jesus and faith in Him that gets us saved. But the Bible speaks of how our works will be judged in the sense of whether or not we're going to be rewarded. There's another passage. It's in 1 Corinthians 3.13. And it says, speaking about this kind of thing, it says, His work, meaning every believer's work, will be shown for what it is because the day, capital D, will bring it to light. And it speaks there in 1 Corinthians 3 about how God's fire will burn up those things that are of no significance. Wood, hay, stubble. 
speaks about those things in our lives that, you know, were not good works. They weren't anything significant in terms of the kingdom perspective and eternal purposes. And so those things are just going to get burned up on the judgment day. They'll count for nothing. But yet God keeps record of our righteous deeds because he wishes to reward us. Matthew 6, three times, Jesus says in Matthew 6, your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So there is a rewarding thing that happens in heaven. I don't know, you know, what it actually looks like or what it will you know, be like because I haven't been there. But based on what scripture talks about, it'll be this moment when God bestows honor upon us and some kind of rewards. In fact, the very book of Revelation ends uh, speaking of rewards in chapter 22, verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. So there is a rewarding of believers. That's the Bema seat judgment of 2 Corinthians 5.10. But judgment in standing before the Lord to find out whether or not are we really going to make it, you know, are we good enough to go? Well, none of us is good enough to go. Jesus paid the price to make us righteous, and at the moment of salvation, we pass from death to life. We've crossed over. There is, therefore, now no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus. There's not going to be this revisiting of all your sins and all your thoughts and everything you've ever done on some big IMAX screen for people to see. It ain't going to happen. So can you give a sigh of relief and say amen to that? Amen. Because I don't know about you, but I'm just stumbled thinking about Vic's screen. You know, and I, I just don't, I don't even want to see it. I don't even want to know. It's been paid for, praise God. Let alone my own screen. But his is far worse. But anyhow, and so, so that's good news. We, we're not going to have to have all this stuff revisited. Because as far as God is concerned, remember the Bible says, He's forgotten it as far as the east is from the west. That doesn't mean that God has a bad memory. He knows all things. What it literally means is he chooses not to hold it against us. As far as the east is from the west, so far have you removed my transgressions from me. So God has cleansed our hearts. We pass from death to life. We've crossed over, no condemnation. That's not this judgment here that we're reading about in chapter 20 of Revelation is not for believers. This is a judgment for unbelievers. Because now he's going to empty hell. God is going to empty Hades, this is the Greek word for hell, in which have been kept all unbelievers. Everybody who's rejected Jesus, and again, Matthew 25, 41, Jesus said that hell was originally created for the devil and his angels, his fallen angels. God does not delight in the death of the wicked. He wants no one to, to uh, be condemned. Um, he, he desires no one to perish, not one. But all to come to repentance, the Bible says. So hell was created originally for the devil and his angels. But all those who reject Jesus and who, who deny him as Messiah will join the devil there. Now, ultimately, Hades will be emptied. And what we read about here in chapter 20 is the lake of fire, verse 14, where it talks about then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. The lake of fire is Gehenna in the Hebrew or Aramaic, Gehenna meaning lake of fire, it's different from Hades. Hades is going to be emptied. And all the unrighteous, all the unbelievers, all those who have forsaken Christ will then be taken from Hades. They will stand before this judgment. They will be condemned and they will be thrown into the lake of fire. Now, in regards to this judgment scene, it is somewhat like a courtroom with a few 
very noticeable differences. And here's what this passage tells us, basically. There will be no debate about guilt or innocence. There will be a prosecutor, but no defense. There will be a judge, but no jury. There will be sentencing without appeal. There will be punishment without parole. This is final. And the suffering is perpetual. Now look again here where it says in verse 12, And I saw the dead, great and small, this is about the unrighteous dead, the unbelieving dead, standing before the throne. So it's, again, the picture of a courtroom. Just before a, a, a prisoner or someone who has been accused of a crime is sentenced, they stand, right? So here, here this person is, they're standing, and all the dead, all the unrighteous dead, spiritually, their spirits are standing before, before Jesus, who is on the throne. He's the one sitting on the great white throne. He's the judge, because John five twenty two says, Jesus said, The Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. Jesus said that, John 5, 22. So Jesus is the one sitting on the throne. He is either going to be in your life, your Savior, or He's going to be your judge. He's one or the other, and you can choose which. He stands ready to be your Savior. He wants to be your Savior. But if you deny Him and reject Him, He will be your judge. And Jesus is seated on the throne here. He's the judge. And here come all the dead, those who are unbelievers, stand before Him like in a courtroom. And books, plural, were opened. Now, that's interesting. Why is it plural? Daniel saw the same thing. Mark the verses down. It's Daniel 7, verses 9 and 10. Let me read it to you. Daniel said, As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days, that's Jesus, took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. Listen to what Daniel says. The court was seated and the books, plural, were opened. Now, the Bible doesn't really explain what books, plural, it names one specific book here. It talks about the book of life. But in the plural sense, we don't really know exactly what this is referring to. But there's a couple of references in the Bible that give us some insight. For example, Malachi 3.16 says, Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other. Listen to this. Those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll, or King James says, a book of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. In other words, Malachi 3.16 tells us that there is a book of remembrance. That's one book that is named in the Bible. And apparently what is recorded is every conversation about the Lord. There is a book that records every conversation about the Lord that is spoken, of course, always in his hearing. Also, when you look at chapter 20 here of Revelation, the second part of verse 12, and it talks about another book was opened, which is the book of life. And then following that, the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. It appears that another book is a book of deeds or works. It is a book that records what people have done. This is different from the salvation record. Because then, in addition to that, those kind of books, book of remembrance, book of deeds or works... We also have the book of the law, of course, that Moses was inspired to pen by the Holy Spirit. And, and the law will stand as a testimony against our unrighteousness, as the standard of what is right and wrong. 
even though Jesus is the ultimate standard, he has outlined his his uh, standard for right and wrong in the book of the law. But then you have, of course, this Lamb's book of life, often referred to as the book of life. The book of life is mentioned six times in Revelation. One other time in the book of Philippians. I'll read it to you, Philippians 4, 3. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And it seems that Jesus referenced it in Luke 10, verse 20. He said, however, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Perhaps he was referring to the book of life that is written in heaven. It is a record book of all of those whose names have been recorded because they are believers in Jesus. Now, the good news is every name starts out there. Your name is only blotted if you reject him. How do we know this? Well, we read it at the beginning of the book of Revelation. Go back to chapter 3 of Revelation. Let's just revisit it real quickly. Chapter 3. Verse 5. Here's the promise Jesus gave. Revelation 3, 5. He who overcomes will like them, speaking about those believers of the church of Sardis, will like them... Be dressed in white, I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. So every person who's born, their name goes there. Until you reach some age of accountability, whatever that magic number is, whatever that age is, where you're able to make a decision, if one does not and they reject Jesus, then their name is blotted out. But everybody's name starts there. It's only removed by rejecting the only true and way to be saved, which is Jesus. He said, I'm the way, not a way. I'm the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So, books are open. Go back here to chapter 20 now. And then it talks about, in verse 13, the sea gave up the dead, death and Hades gave up the dead. And so no more death. Death is done. Hades has been emptied. The other side of Hades, which is the paradise side, was already emptied. When Jesus, after that, during that three days that he was in the tomb, his spirit went to the paradise side of Hades, and he ushered out all the believers who were who were believers in the righteousness that came by works, because that was all the Old Testament saints. They were kept in paradise until Jesus then could pay the price for all humanity. He goes to that paradise site of Hades, announces that he's the one who paid the price, the lamb that was prophesied, the, the Messiah, and he ushers out, Ephesians tell us, he ushers out the believers, the righteous believers of the Old Testament saints, and he empties paradise side. So paradise side has been emptied since Jesus rose from the dead. Hades is still the place where all the unrighteous go, even presently, but it will be emptied on this day of the great white throne judgment. And so again, verse, uh, chapter 20 ends, verse 15, If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And so that's the great white throne judgment. Don't be concerned you're going to end up there as a believer uh, because your judgment already takes place at the time that you trust Christ as your Savior. As we look into chapter 21, we're introduced to the new Jerusalem. Now, that's what it's referred to here. As we read this 21st chapter, I want you to notice with me, it is 
just a beautiful description of what heaven will be like. I say will be like because this is not a description of what heaven presently looks like. At least that we know of. It might. Heaven itself right now might look like what is being described here. But what we're going to find is that as chapter 21 begins, the present heaven and the present earth are going to be destroyed. What we're about to read in chapter 21 has not yet been created. It will come down from heaven and it will be the eternal home for all believers. But this is different from the present heaven. So there might obviously be some similarities, but I just want to point it out because oftentimes, you know, we'll talk about streets of gold. Well, maybe there are streets of gold now in heaven. Uh, but the streets of gold that we're reading, the streets of gold we're reading about here in chapter 21 is a description of the new Jerusalem, which, which hasn't happened yet. You know, even when I do funerals, I'm going to read from this 21st chapter because if nothing else, it gets, gives us a glimpse of the beauty and splendor of what heaven probably does look like. But this is not exactly the same because the present heaven is going to be destroyed. So take a look here at um, this slide first and then we'll read... Uh, the first eight verses, and then we'll, we'll, we'll back up. The new Jerusalem that's being described here, we're going to see that it tells us here that God will be present in verse 3. Verse 4 says all of our sorrows will be absent. Verse 7 tells us that believers will be present, and verse 8 makes it clear that sinners will be absent. So let me read the first eight verses. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven, that's the one presently, and the first earth, that's what we live on, had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Now, this is not the only place that we read about in the Bible that... that the present heaven and the present earth will be destroyed. For you note-takers, mark this down, Isaiah 65, verse 17. Isaiah saw this thousands of years before it's going to happen. Isaiah 65, 17. Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. Also, this passage, 2 Peter 3, verses 10 through 14. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements 
will be destroyed by fire, and the earth will be, and everything in it will be laid bare. Talk about global warming. Listen. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with His promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. So this is going to happen. Present heavens, present earth are going to be destroyed. The end of the great white throne judgment, then there's going to be this destruction of the heavens and the earth. That's probably no doubt what Jesus was referring to in Matthew 24, verse 35, when he said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. He was looking at that day when what we know now as earth and what is presently heaven will both be destroyed. And there's going to be this new holy city, this new Jerusalem that's going to come down and it's beautifully described here. Now, this does present in our minds a bit of a dilemma if you're thinking this through at all because it talks about present heavens and present earth being destroyed and then this heavenly city coming down. Well, then what happens to all of us? Where are we? Well, you know, there's going to be obviously some kind of miraculous suspension in the universe where we're just suspended as this great white throne judgment is occurring here. Earth is destroyed, heaven is destroyed, and God is starting all over, brand new. So he's got the ability, if he presently suspends the earth in the universe, he's going to be able to suspend us on some kind of, you know, invisible platform, I suppose, or whatever, as this new Jerusalem, this holy city, is coming down from heaven. And it's being described here as like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband, verse 2. So it's just going to be this beautiful, magnificent thing. You know, I, I can still remember seeing Terry when she was at the back of the church and, you know, with her dad and ready to come down the aisle. Just that, you know, flutter of your heart and just that nervous and, the, and how beautiful she was. And, you know, every man knows that moment and remembers that moment when you married your wife. And the picture here is the beauty of, of what God is creating here. So the, the bride language here is not a reference to the church. The bride language is the beauty of what, is, of what we're going to behold here. And it's, and it's going to be ours forever and ever. It's going to be our home with the Lord forever and ever. And so he talks about, verse 3, this loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men. It's interesting. That word dwelling is the Greek word skenu. It's the same word used in John 1, 14, where it talks about, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us means to tabernacle among us, that the Lord Jesus, God took on skin and, and dwelt among us. And even in a more magnificent way, will we be in the presence of the Lord, dwelling with him forever and ever. The dwelling of God is with men. He will live with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And I love verse four. And I, I do believe that again, even though this is speaking of the new Jerusalem that's coming, this, this has got to be descriptive of, of heaven now. The idea of how he wipes away every tear from our eyes. No more death. No more mourning. No more crying. No more pain. The old order of things has passed away. You know, our, our physical lives, physical bodies, physical emotions, so limiting, so deceptive, 
so unreliable. Our bodies begin to fade, and, and uh, the older people get, the more debilitating things happen, you know, become, and, and sometimes disease sets in, and, you know, arthritis, and, you know, I, I, I read a passage like this, and I think about the paraplegics of the world who just feel, you know, quadriplegics feel trapped in their body, but one day they're going to run the streets of gold. I mean, to know Christ, to be with Him, to be absent from the body, to be in His presence. I mean, what a beautiful thing to know that all the limitations of our physical bodies, all the aches and pains, all the instability of our emotions, all the grief, the mourning, the pain is going to be gone. We're just going to be in the presence of the Lord. No more of those things. Now, we even had this discussion earlier today among the pastors, or maybe it was yesterday, I don't, I don't remember now. Everything starts to, you know, when you get older, your, your mind is uh, less uh, sharp. But anyhow, I don't remember if it was today or last year. But anyhow, we had this discussion about... Um, going to heaven, and you know, what's the deal about, and people have asked me this before, um, one of your loved ones isn't there. They rejected Christ as their Savior. Will you know that? I don't believe we'll know it. And if we do know it, there must be this ability to not grieve over it in some way because I don't, I don't know how to explain it. We just have to believe that what God says here when He says no more crying, no more pain, no more mourning, no more grief, that you're, you're not going to... My guess is you won't even know that your loved one is missing. I think, you know, sometimes memory is not all that what it's cracked up to be, <laughs> you know. Sometimes it's good to forget some things. And it would be pretty painful to look around and maybe remember certain people that weren't there. I mean, that would be painful. So there's got to be a way that either God prevents us from having that knowledge, or in some way He wires us in the same way that He's wired so that we can have a, a coping mechanism that we presently don't have. Remember, when God created Adam and Eve, He originally created mankind to live forever. When man sinned, death entered the human race. But we were never originally hardwired to experience death because that was not God's original intention. I personally believe that the emotion of grief is the most painful and horrible emotion humanly because we were never hardwired to, to experience it. It was never God's intention we should die or experience death. So when sin entered the human race, now suddenly we're, we're left with an emotion that is raw and, and in many ways very, very difficult to manage except for the grace of Jesus uh, because we weren't designed to have to uh, experience that emotion. And so, you know, even you as a believer and, and you, you're struck with grief, it's a very real emotion. Don't be hard on yourself to think, well, you know, I'm a Christian, I should be beyond this kind of thing, because we were never hardwired to experience grief, and so it's even that much more of a difficult emotion to deal with. But in heaven, we won't have to deal with that anymore, because there's something about being in His presence, and or the way that God ministers to our mind, that we're not going to have to deal with that kind of grief, or crying, or mourning, or pain, because all of that's going to pass away now it's pure and utter joy in His presence. Not another bad hair day in your life. Not another bad traffic day. Not another bad day looking in a mirror or on the scales or anything. It's going to be perfect for all eternity. Can I hear an amen for that? 
And so this is what's being described here. And, you know, this is the reason why God's given us this. It's almost like He's given us, and this is such a poor illustration of what the, the profoundness of this passage is, but it's almost like God's given us, you know, a Christmas gift early, where we can open it up, and He wants us to know in advance, this is what's coming. Hold on, now I'm going to wrap it back up. You're not going to get it till it's today. But I just wanted you to peek in the box and see it. How many of you looked first in your Christmas gifts when you were growing up and snuck and looked? I'm going to write your names down right now. That's, that's just wrong. But anyhow, God's going to at least allow and you're, you who did that. You're getting this glimpse here. So this should just really thrill you because you're seeing it in advance. And it's going to be even more spectacular when, when we're there. So he's making everything new, verse 5. Verse 6, he's the Alpha and the Omega. That's the first letter and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. He's the beginning and the end. He talks about in, in verse 6, To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. In Psalm 36, 9, the Bible says, For with you is the fountain of life. So I believe it's just a reference to himself. You're going to be able to drink of the Lord, and you're going to be continually satisfied, and never have a want or a need or a craving for anything or anyone else. It's all going to be met and satisfied in Jesus. There is nothing else and no one else that can satisfy us like Jesus. And even in this lifetime, so many people, this might be even your testimony, you've gone in search of many different things that you thought would satisfy your life. And you've always come up empty. Because it's only in Jesus that we're ultimately satisfied. But then in this day, when we're standing before Him, all those personal struggles and all of those, you know, um, fleshly desires, that's all going to be stripped away. There's going to be just complete and utter satisfaction in His presence because nothing will be competing for it. It's just going to be all about Jesus. But yet he makes the distinction between he who overcomes in verse 7 and the unrighteous of verse 8. He says the unrighteous, and then he just lists a few of you know many sins that could be listed. He said they're, they're going to end up in the fiery lake of burning sulfur, which is the lake of fire. And he says this is the second death. Now, why the second death? Well... Because if you're born once, you die twice. But if you're born twice, you die once. Everybody understand that? If you're born once, you're physically born into this world, but you don't have a second birth. That is to say, you don't accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That's the second birth. You know... In John chapter 3, where Jesus has this conversation with Nicodemus, a man must be born again. Nicodemus said to Jesus, how can a man be born? How can a man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus said to Nicodemus, you're a teacher of Israel and you do not know these things. Except a man be born of water and of spirit, he shall not enter the kingdom of God. Water being that which is physical, because when the water breaks, we all are born physically. But that which is of a spiritual birth is when you and I make a decision to trust Jesus as our Lord and Savior, then we're born again. So if you're born twice, you only die once. We die a physical death and we go to be with the Lord forever. But if you're only born once, you will die twice. You will die physically and then you will experience a second death, which is the eternal punishment in the lake of fire. It's not an annihilation. It's a perpetual suffering. But in that sense, it's thought of as a death. So born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. Let me give you the last couple of points from the New Jerusalem, and then we'll read the last few verses here in the time we have left. The rest of New Jerusalem is described like this. 
Verse 11 and 23 talk about that the light will be bright because it'll be with God's glory. There's not going to be any nighttime, no rotational, you know, movement of the holy city on the axis. It's going to be a constant light with the brilliance of God's light. Verse 12 says the wall of the city will be high and wide with 12 gates. Verse 14 tells us the foundation of the city will be deep. It talks about 12 layers and it and it talks about the colors of these layers. You're going to read a lot of colors here. It's very brilliant in colors. Verse 16 says the city was large. It, it measures about 1,500 miles square. Now, not square miles, but miles square. The city is described like a cube. It is 1,500 miles high, 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles deep. It is described somewhat, somewhat like a cube, and the dimensions, 1,500 miles in every direction, is basically a little smaller than the size of the moon, if you want just proximity. And then verses 18 to 21 talk about how the city will be beautiful. So let's read ahead. Verse 9, I'm going to read through the end of the chapter, and then we'll come back and comment. Verse 9. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. Now, this is interesting because it it gives a similar description to the arrangement of the 12 tribes of Israel. When you look in the Old Testament, the 12 tribes were arranged with three tribes to the north, three to the south, three to the east, and three to the west. And that's how the gates are going to be located in this great city. And uh, so the 12 tribes of Israel, names written on each of the gates. Verse 14 says, The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were written the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Now that brings into debate what 12 names. Surely Judas' name won't be on there. So who will be the 12th? Will it be Paul? That would be my guess. Does it matter? No, because we'll just read it when we get there. Stay tuned. Verse 15. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length. And I converted it for you, about 1,500 miles is what 12,000 stadia is, 1,400 to 1,500 miles, right around in there. And as wide and high as it is long. So see, it's being described here like a cube. Incidentally, the the, um, present city of Jerusalem is only about one square mile. So this is, you know, infinitely superior to that. Verse 17, he measured its wall and it was 144 cubits thick. And that is about twelve, uh, rather 200 feet. Now, this is difficult to understand because the word thick doesn't appear in the original Greek language. So it really says he measured its wall and it was 144 cubits by man's measurement. So does that mean it was 200 feet high or 200 feet thick? 
The NIV opts for thick, but we don't really know if it speaks of height or width. But, but by man's measurement, which the angel was using. Verse 18, the wall was made of jasper. And uh, jasper, we don't really know what that color is. It's going to describe, you know, elements, jewels here, minerals that we might know of as a color now. Is that necessarily the color then? We don't really know. Jasper can come in reddish, yellowish, brown, or green. So we don't really know. And the city of pure gold... As pure as glass. So there's something very transparent, but colorful all at the same time. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. Now, what we're going to read here are the 12 layers that have the 12 names of the apostles written on them. And so they're very colorful here. Notice this color. It says uh, the first foundation was jasper. The second, sapphire. So... Jasper, probably more like a, a, um, a crystal clear, like a diamond. The color sapphire, of course, as we know, it would be like a deep blue. The third was, is called chalcedony. Chalcedony is kind of a greenish stone with some stripes of other colors mixed in. The fourth emerald, which, again, as far as we know these colors, that would be a deep green the fifth, sardonyx. Sardonyx is kind of a reddish, white onyx. Some people have described it like the color of healthy fingernails, so some kind of a reddish white. The sixth is carnelian, which is a fiery red stone. The seventh, chrysolite. Not crystal light, but chrysolite. That is like a bright, light green. The eighth barrel, barrel is like a sea green emerald, which is, it would, it's lighter than chalcedony. Um, the, the ninth is topaz, like a transparent greenish yellow. The tenth chrysoprase, it's a kind of a yellowish pale green, similar to like an aquamarine color. The eleventh jacinth, which is a, a, a violet kind of a color. And then even more purple or violet is the 12th layer, which is amethyst. Can you imagine the colors of all of that? I mean, just brilliant colors. Now, you know, I, I was reading up on colors a little bit. We all know we have three primary colors. I did a little research real quickly. The human eye relies on special cells in the retina called cones to see color. There are three types of cones that are identified by ophthalmologists like a red cone are sensitive to red lights, green cones in our eyes sensitive to green lights, blue cones sensitive to blue lights, and light that stimulates only the red cone, we see only red. Light that stimulates only the blue cone, we see only blue. And, and when the light begins to um, stimulate both or all three, then we allows us to see different colors. Uh, light that stimulates... All three cones at the same time causes us to see white, uh, a light that stimulates blue and, and the red cones together causes us to see a bluish red or magenta. But what I, what I found interesting is that, that television sets and computers have the three primary colors because it appeals to the human eye, but it's limited in the number of overlap colors that we can see on our television. So roughly 255 colors the human eye can see 
by using the three primary colors. Now, Sony has come out with this fourth, and it's not a primary color. They call it a primary color. They need to go back to school. It's a secondary color. It's yellow, and they've mixed it with the three primary colors, and I was reading up on it. It's called the Quad Pixel Technology now. By adding yellow to the colors, red, green, and blue, the televisions are capable of rendering nearly all the colors a human eye can discern. You know how many that is? About one trillion colors. By adding one more into the equation, we now can move from about 255 colors that the human eye can perceive on a regular television to a trillion colors on this new... And I'm not plugging sharp television sets... Um, I'm not getting any royalties for saying this, but I'm just letting you know that the technology is such that uh, Mikio Kariyama, the, the president and CEO of Sharp Corporation, said, we have changed the way an LCD TV produces an image with the new, he has this wrong, four primary color technology, allowing us to broaden the visual experience and, Im- and immerse consumers in a new world of color. The only reason I'm bringing this up is because it's interesting to think that if technology has gone from allowing the human eye to see 255 colors to a trillion, what would happen if there was just one other color scheme introduced in heaven and the brilliance of unknown colors we, we presently don't even know that will just come to light in that glorious place? So, you know, great things to think of and what that might look like. Verse 21 says the 12 gates were 12 pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. So you know that old thing about, you know, the pearly gates? Well, that is actually true. It's actually true. There are pearly gates, but these are a single pearls, which makes me wonder, what did the size of that oyster look like? But anyhow, and then it says the great street of the city was of pure gold like transparent glass. And there you have that transparency, but yet the beauty of the gold. And he says in verse 22, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. So you're you're never going to have to go to bed again. You're always going to be up. Some of you like that idea anyway. You try to live like that now, but no more sleep deprivation. You'll just be able to, you know, live life to the fullest all the time. You won't ever go tired because you you don't have a body that is, uh, you know, frail anymore. It's a glorified body. Verse 24 is a little difficult. It says the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. I mean, maybe that's a statement just of the redeemed who will continue to worship the Lord. On no day will it, because there isn't going to be any more nations in terms of there's, you know, these walls are not to keep enemies out. Of the, this, there are no more enemies. There is no more sin. There, this is all a glorified state. And verse 26 says, The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written, and here we have it again, in the Lamb's book of life. And that's the most challenging part of this Bible study, isn't it? Because if you know Christ is your Savior, then you know your, na- your name's in the Lamb's Book of Life. And everything we just read is glorious because it's your future, it's your hope, it's your eternal destiny. But if you have a doubt that your name is in the Lamb's Book of Life, then you have every reason to read this and be concerned. But the good news is, 
that as many as believed in him, to those that received him as Savior, he gave the right to become sons of God. Your name can be in the Lamb's book of life if you'd accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And what greater time and opportunity than tonight as we read about this to invite you to pray and ask Jesus into your heart this evening. So would you bow your heads with me as we close our Bible study? If you're here tonight and you don't have the assurance that your name is in that book, there is a real book. The book records the names of all of those who have accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It's not a book about whether you're good enough to get into heaven. There's none righteous, no, not one. None of us is good enough to get into heaven. But Jesus paid the price so that as a gift, we can all enter heaven because of what he has done. And all you need to do is to believe in him as your Lord and Savior. If you're here tonight and you have any doubts whatsoever, why don't you invite Jesus into your heart and settle that doubt once and for all? It doesn't matter what you've done. As I said earlier at the beginning of the study, if you trust Christ as your Savior, what He's done on the cross will cover all your sins so that one day you can stand before God without fault, the Bible says, because you've been now draped in the righteousness of Jesus like a garment that is pure and spotless. He gives it to you. Trust Him tonight as your Lord and Savior. Don't leave here and wonder. All that we've just read can be yours if you would believe and receive. I'm going to give you that opportunity right now to pray and trust Christ as your Lord and Savior. Your head's bowed and eyes closed. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, pray this prayer with me. Just right now, pray it where you're seated. I'll pray it. You repeat it after me. Lord Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross for sinners like me. I confess that I am a sinner. Lord, I need you to forgive me. I need you to cleanse my heart of everything I've done. And I invite you to come into my life to be my Lord and Savior. Save me tonight, Jesus. I completely surrender my life to you. Be my Lord this night forward that I one day can stand in your presence and run on streets of gold forever and ever. Thank you for loving me, Lord. Thank you for saving me tonight. In Jesus' name. Amen and amen. As profound as that is, that's as simple as it gets. If you prayed to receive Christ as your Savior tonight, I'd just love the opportunity or one of the other pastors to just encourage you tonight and just pray with you before you go home. So if you have the moment, just slip down front after we're dismissed and just let us know. We have a New Testament Bible we'd love to give you just to celebrate your decision to trust Christ as your Savior tonight. God bless you all. Have a great night. You are dismissed. Read ahead and we'll finish up Revelation. Lord willing, if he doesn't come, next Wednesday night.